This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis and part two of our interview with Dr. Stephanie Swales and Dr. Carol Owens, their book, um, Psychoanalyzing Ambivalence with Freud and Lacan, On and Off the Couch. Dr. Owens, Dr. Swales, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us so much. Yeah. So we're, we've just gotten started on extimacy. Um, we, we talked about it, Stephanie, a little bit about uh, in, in the neighbor, our neighbor has stolen something from us. Right now in America, the neighbor has stolen the election. Mm-hmm. Um, something is stolen in the other. Uh, but Stephanie, you had brought us um, back into the clinic, back onto the couch. And since the core of the book starts on the couch, um, help us with extimacy on the couch uh, and in the clinic. Sure. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, one of our patients uh, just always hated uh, people that he perceived as border- borderlines, um, you know, those with borderline personality disorder diagnosed by uh, this analysand. Uh, and, you know, as you would expect, uh, his mother was uh, the original borderline for him. And uh, she had, um, uh, he described her as controlling, intrusive, um, and, you know, would would throw a fit if someone uh, seemed to reject her in the slightest way. Uh, Things like, um, you know, if one of the children or or the father... um, didn't want to eat uh, one of the things she had prepared. Um, she would round up all the all the food and throw it in the trash, um, you know, things like that. Um, and the analysis in question, uh, as a as a young person, um, tried his darndest to be the apple of her eye and to continue with the the food uh, examples. Uh, and uh, wanted to be the the favorite of the siblings, and um, so on and so forth. But as he grew up, he um, you know saw a you know, kind of hateful side of his mother, and uh, you know basically in the the decades that followed, had uh, seen himself as someone who was completely different than her. Um, he was of a different political party. He um, uh, had a totally different career, um, you know, uh, different types of relationships, you know, so on and so forth. Um, And of course, you know, spoiler, since I'm trying to give an example of of the extimacy uh, of jouissance, um, uh, you know, that the jouissance that he hated in her Um, he, through the course of the analysis, um, uh, began to recognize that as uh, his own, 
he was deeply disturbed when you know he first started recognizing uh, the evidence of the jouissance of the other in himself, um, penchant for drug use and thrill-seeking, um, picking fights with loved ones, um, uh, using his um, so-called mental illness to try to ensure that his spouse would be too guilty, feel too guilty to leave him. Um, you know, so, uh, of course, uh, his own jouissance was, um, you know, reflected in, in some different ways than that of his mother's, but, um, you know, seeing himself as a borderline, having borderline jouissance, um, was crucial to then being able to, uh, work through his own ambivalence about his jouissance, uh, because he had, thought of it in more of a, um, a happy light that, you know, he liked who he was and he was totally different than this borderline type, um, you know, so to claim all of his jouissance, you know, those jouissance that he hated and that he loved, um, you know, to work through that uh, was crucial in having a different kind of relation to the other. And of course, not just the mother, but the repetitions in his um, in his work, in his choice of relationships, um, things like that. So um, it's not always as clear the extimacy of jouissance as I presented it just now. Um, certainly not to the person, him or herself, um, given that uh, you know it tends to be uh, perceived in the other in a somewhat distorted or disguised form um, as as alien to the self um, and it takes quite some time to um, be able in analysis to to see you know what it is that's hated in the other reflects something uh, of oneself there's um what came to mind when you were talking stephanie was uh, a dream of one of my own patients and it's it's interesting because I hadn't I suppose one of the things that we forget sometimes and it's what you said you know it's how how the jouissance of uh you know what is extimate is actually distorted you know so there's so there's the you know that I suppose alienation in the first place from what is regarded as let's say the other's jouissance so that's like stage one we could say and then there is a further alienation from rec recognizing that jouissance as one's own, in fact. And further then the hatred of the jouissance of the other and the hatred of, in fact, what is one's own jouissance. So I was thinking of this dream, um, a really interesting dream. Uh, a woman I saw for a long time, French woman, living in Ireland for some time, and she explained to me how uh, she was having dreams about decorating her home and she wanted to paint the entire apartment yellow. So this was very interesting to her because she would say to me, no, you know what, I really, I, I, I hate that color. I, I really hate that color. And she said, you know, it's interesting because it's maybe one of the few things I have in common with my mother. We both hate the color yellow. So I got her to associate to that and it didn't take her long before she started to explain to me that, you know, why she had so little in common with her mother was because her mother was a racist and her mother indeed did hate the color. What she hated was not the color yellow, but the color black. And my clients knew and, and would say to me that she didn't understand why, but she had a deep, 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 deep attraction to uh, particularly black men. So in this curious way, she, if you like, had sutured uh, something which for her brought her some jouissance, which was in her relationships with these black lovers, black male lovers, um, but which was in turn conditioned on her mother's extimate jouissance, which was a hatred of the color black. I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. 
Of course, there's also the example that we used in the book, which was, you know, the, the chap who liked to park outside in fact, my neighbor's house because he knew, you know, he'd, he'd realized that the chap was, my neighbor was, let's say, Eastern European. And the fantasy was how much he was annoying my neighbor by parking outside of his house. And all through the session, he'd be there ruminating on how annoyed this neighbor was going to become. And I suppose the point we made about that in the book was that how you, you know, you don't even need your own irritating neighbor whose jouissance you can't stand. In fact, you can use somebody else's neighbor. But of course, in the end, it was his own. You know, this was something he especially could not stand was somebody parking outside of his home. So, of course, he imagined that the other also hated what was, you know, uh, uh, something he enjoyed to hate, we could say. He also imagined that my neighbor would enjoy to hate as well. When you talk about you don't even need your own um, neighbor to hate and, yeah. and the example of the, the dream um, with the association with race, um, you, you say that one of the, one of the, the precise points in the book um, you write that uh, this is precisely our point. Xenophobia in its various iterations as a phobia stands in for the lack in the other, um, the other's desire, the other's jouissance. These are the two faces of lack. Mm. Um, mm. And, and you, can, you can lack a neighbor and still get it done. Yes, yes exactly. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that, indeed building on that point that you just mentioned, uh, Christopher, was that, and although we didn't dedicate a huge amount of space to it in the book, it's certainly something that we've been thinking about before and since, but we wanted to make the point that xenophobia, you know, that that you find it in three registers, in the, the, the three registers that we associate with Lacan's work, you know, the imaginary, the symbolic and the real. And I suppose when we do talk about, throughout the book, we talk about how um, you know, uh, mostly under, you know, under neoliberalism and at this stage of late capitalism that, um, you know, our semblable is someone that we have to compete with and that this can, you know, arouse a kind of jealous or aggressive rivalry with our neighbour, with our counterpart. So that's the kind of imaginary dimension. And then at the level of the symbolic, we see how xenophobia can be um, both hidden in and also, uh, you know, and very effectively disguised by various discourses, um, not least, you know, uh, let's say, yeah, discourses which promote political correct speech and practice, but also at the level of ideology. And that, that would be this sort of symbolic dimension. Uh, and by the ideology, I mean things like ideological practices like, uh, you know, multiculturalism and um, identity politics, um, which are all ways of trying to organize under one signifier um, difference, right? The difference uh, which is supposedly tolerant of uh, alterity, of the alterity of the other, um, but nonetheless rely on uh, difference as it could be uh, regulated by or represented by the signifier. So then we look at, we, I suppose, focus on xenophobia in the real. And that's where we talk about, you know, jouissance of the subject, jouissance of the other. And the jouissance of the subject is the one that we've been sort of talking about, where something is imagined to be stolen from you, your objet a, the thing that's taken away from you by the foreign, the strange, the alien other. And then on the other hand, there is the jouissance of the other, which is unfathomable and terrifying. Um, and that is something that we try to distance ourselves from. So there's those two aspects of the kind of real dimension of um, xenophobia. And the, the subtitle for that chapter is, I'm not racist, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a very good reason for that subtitle. Uh, did I say? Did we say I am, or did we say we are not? <laughs> um, I think we said we are not. That's right. We are not racist. We are not racist, but, but 
correct. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and the reason for that was because I mean we we wanted to um, I suppose we were looking at the different ways in which uh, negation, um, which is to say a way to deny or attempt to you know to say that no 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 you know uh, we're all you know we're all kind of good decent people here trying to understand and embrace difference trying to um work with our fellow man and woman to uh to get along and um make the best of things and so of course that that's essentially a way to negate the experience of ambivalence which brings us that's that that brings us full circle in the book because that's where we begin we begin with the idea that mm, we don't really buy that we we see in the clinic we see in culture uh, the attempts to somehow push ambivalence under, push it away. It's not recognized any longer as something which is, um, you know, essential to the human condition or the experience of being a human being. So as such, we begin the book by looking at how ambivalence, or rather the tensions of ambivalence, how they are foreclosed. So in, you know, with with Freud and Lacan, we take then negation we look at the three different types of negation in that chapter. We look at foreclosure, but we begin with repression, and then we look at disavowal, and then we find, you know, we finish off where we began, which is on foreclosure. So disavowal would be one of the mechanisms of negation, uh, which is linked in Lacanian psychoanalysis to perversion. But we, we, you know, we we that that whole the the, the sort of the. Mm, the statement, I am not a racist, but this comes from the Octave Manoni's, uh, his Je sais bien mais quand même, which is this kind of fetishist disavowal. Um, Zizek has made a huge, huge, um, you know, made huge use of that, um, that, that formula. And, and you see it in, in quite kind of everyday discourse I think the example in the book that we used was from um, a study of college students carried out uh, in in the year 2000 where uh, you know a, a typical kind of comment would be and, and the college students sorry were interviewed about about prejudice and you'd have someone say something like well I'm not prejudice or whatever but <laughs> and so the, the 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 recognition of you know how one is supposed to be or rather what is you know what one is supposed to be without but it's quite you know quickly followed with the but and and then you have the the, the reason for your discontent which is rolled out but it's not because you're racist it's because of something else and I suppose you know one of the things that we loved about Sheldon George's book um was that he really shows how, um, you know, racial uh, kind of, you, you can have a kind of transformation of racial hatred expressed as an intolerance of violence. And, and that that's, that's kind of a core argument um, in his analysis of, you know, the ways in which especially young black men have been um, slaughtered really in the last in the last number of decades on the basis that there was something intolerant about their behavior rather than it was because they were black, you know? Yeah. He, uh, uh, he joined us, uh, on the podcast yeah. in another episode, uh, oh, with, our, with our editor, uh, Tracy Morgan. Great. I was also thinking about the, uh, the ambivalence and jouissance. This is decades old. I don't think it happens anymore. Um, but it used to be, you would say to somebody, well, it's okay that you're gay as long as you act straight in public. Right. And you and That used to be very common. Right, but you wouldn't hear that anymore. But that doesn't mean no. that it wouldn't be thought, you know. Um it's it's there's the, the fantasy that because things are quote unquote better now, that um, you know, uh in a certain way this means that things have actually changed. You know, they, they look like they've changed, so they must have changed. But people can still think these things, of course. 
um i unfortunately just I heard yesterday on the news here in Ireland that uh, well, it's pride here at the moment. I don't know if it's pride in the U.S. at this time of the year, but typically, you know, there would be um, Pride March um, and, you know, lots of celebrations um, of, you know, LGB LGBTQ communities across Ireland. And as you probably know, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but Ireland was, um, well, I still think one of the very few countries that actually voted in marriage equality as you know with, by popular vote rather than you know by law i mean it's law now but we voted for it um by referendum now so you would think wouldn't you you'd think well this is pretty cool this is great my god that's fantastic it's so progressive but i heard in the last day or two that there are you know there have been um you know the the Pride flags have been taken down and burnt uh, in different communities in Ireland and um, buildings, you know, LGBTQ buildings have been defaced or, um, you know, with kind of hate graffiti. So it's just, you know, it's if you push something down hard enough and fast enough, and this is our argument, it will still find a way to come back, you know, and yeah, in a nutshell. So you can try to negate it whichever way you like, either by law or by ideology, but it will find its way. As, as we talk about this and, and racism in general and, and the book, um, Stephanie, you have uh, examples, things uh, uh, in the, the current cultural moment that, that illustrate what we're talking about. Yeah, um, you know, certainly we could see the... Um, the riot uh, attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building uh, in January of this year as, as one uh, instructive example of, of xenophobia as well as extremacy uh, insofar as um, and we shouldn't forget that fear and hatred of our outgroup political party <laughs> can itself be a form of xenophobia. Um, and uh, it, it clearly wasn't uh, restricted to that um, as you know, a you know, reporter who was present on the, on the scene um, you know, commented, you know, one man was carrying a Confederate flag through the building. Um, There's a, a black member of the Capitol Police, I believe, who said during the assault, he was called a racial slur um, 15 sometimes, um, and, you know, we certainly remember scenes of the rather horrifying jouissance of the rioters, including, you know, beating a police officer with a pole flying the, the U.S. flag. Um, but, uh, one, one New Yorker reporter, uh, had, uh, mentioned that one of the chants of the crowd had been whose house our house um you know claiming that uh, you know that was that was their house the white house um and you know clearly they were um, deriving jouissance from um, their xenophobia from their racism as they um, tried to eject those that they hated from the borders of, you know, what they claimed as, as our house, um, you know, so, um, you know, of course they're seeing the, uh, the other as having stolen something that was rightfully theirs, uh, you know, barging in where they weren't wanted and here they're doing, you know, the exact same thing, um, via maybe intimacy. I, maybe Go I can just, girl. Yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, obviously, I, I could jump in and, and mention that, you know, in the book, we, <clears throat> when we talk about these types of examples, although this one is very recent, the one that you've just mentioned, uh, we do talk about how, um, you know, the collapsing the border, the border is a signifier of, you know, the, the threat of your the threat of your objet are being taken away from you. So 
the collapsing borders or the erection of a wall, for example. And I suppose we we gave you know the example in the European context of um, of Brexit, uh, which you know I mean it was years and years in the coming, and certainly when you know we we you know we highlighted how uh, the you know some British people were you know the the pro Brexit. Um, uh, People who who were really pro Brexit were going around with you know placards and banners saying we want our country back and we are not Europeans. So again, this you know we we want something back which is ours, and you know and by the same token, the kind of disidentifying with the alien, strange, foreign other whose jouissance you don't identify with as, and you certainly don't identify it as your own. Um, so and we kind of ironically call that a brextimate, you know, ambivalence rather than just extimate ambivalence. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's just it, you know, that you can find it, you know, it, it's great. You know, you find these examples uh, here, there and everywhere, you know, because as as we were you know as we were saying just a few minutes ago stephanie when you were uh, out uh, that it was you know it's something that we see you know the more and more and more we try or cultures try to negate uh, ambivalence or negate the expression of the tensions of, of ambivalence the more it returns in all sorts of other ways which are very public and very performative um, and and often uh, quite dangerous, you know, and certainly incendiary. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, Stephanie, when you said the, um, you know, the Confederate flag in the Capitol, but if you speak to people that fly it, they will say, oh, it represents heritage, yeah. not hate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and what's interesting with, with uh, the Brexit example, and there's been two you know, I think, you know, full page, big articles in the business section of the New York Times that the top tables, you know, the top restaurants in um, Britain, because they don't have European workers, they can't staff them. They can't open. They're cutting back hours because they don't have the other to serve, you know, yeah, the, right. to serve in the restaurants. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really amazing. That's going to be um, a problem. Yeah. It is. It is going to be a problem. Um, and another so, um, another recent um, thing in that vein, you know, we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, a notable rise in uh, xenophobia against people who appear to be Asian, um, mm-hmm. xenophobia. Yeah. Um, and and now yeah. Indian with the new Delta variant. Right. Yeah. And and certainly. Um, attempts, you know, to, to separate and, and, you know, segregate, um, yeah. not frequenting, um, you know, Asian stores and et cetera. Well, uh, segregation, another, yeah, ahead, I mean, Kara. well, no, just that, that segregation and separation have mm-hmm. traditionally been historically been ways of trying to manage, uh, you know, this precisely this kind of, uh, extimate, ambivalence that we're talking about I mean how, how else can you manage it if you cannot you know build up a fence against it or a wall <laughs> build a defense against it um, or push it away in some way so totally mm-hmm. separate from it or segregate it that's what or, um, or shoot it in the example that is coming yeah. to mind uh, with yeah. uh, this past March the um, Robert Aaron Long the the shooter uh, at the massage parlors in the Atlanta, yeah. Georgia area, um, yeah, yeah. you know, shot eight people to death. And, you know, he said that um, the shootings represented a temptation he wanted to eliminate um, and that uh, he had been motivated by a sexual addiction that was at odds with his religious beliefs, you know, so he was, 
you know, literally killing the the other uh, in order to try to eradicate his own hated jouissance. Um, you know that the extimacy we can we can see that um, the hatred of the Asian women's jouissance that's evident in xenophobia actually points to the shooter's own hatred of his jouissance, you know, this sexual enjoyment that's attached to, you know, specifically Asian, Asian women. And of course the massage parlors didn't necessarily need to be um, providing sexual massages. And that's a stereotype, Um, but he certainly sought out a violent solution to eradicate his ambivalence about his own jouissance. And, and we see that uh, in uh, you know, such horrific magnitude as well as in, in much smaller ways that you might only notice in the clinic. Well, to talk about noticing things in, in the clinic, um, there's a, an old saw that says, you know, analysis begins when the analyst becomes the problem. Um, but I'm always aware of when the when a patient um, uh, identifies what they think is my jouissance. So, you know, a, a recent example, I say to somebody, I don't, uh, I'm going to be out of the office next Tuesday. Can we meet on Wednesday? They say yes. And in the Wednesday, they come in and they're like, how was your day off? As if it was this incredible, mm-hmm. you know, wonderful time that I had had. Mm. Um, and... You know those those clues when they begin to to be critical of how you live. Well, you must enjoy a nice life. You know, then mm. they begin to be critical of what they see the analyst jouissance is. I think we begin to get to the core of the ambivalence um, in in the clinic. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, it, it certainly shows up in in the transference as well, mm-hmm. and and all all the you know it's it's often. I'm almost amusing the, the various different ways in which our analyses uh, assign us a certain jouissance, um, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's obvious that it belongs to, to them, uh, even if you know there's some you know quote unquote objective reality to whatever it is their their comment mm-hmm. may be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to. Um, shift to another part of uh, the book that I think is important and, and culturally tomorrow in New York is Father's Day. Yeah, and um, we have, we, we have, uh, we have fathers in the book. Um, mm. And, uh, uh, it, and of it's course today is, is Juneteenth. To... Today is Juneteenth. We're recording on Juneteenth. Yes. Mm. It's the perfect weekend yeah. for this. Checking all the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you know, uh, I want to get into um, to fathers because, um, you know, somewhere, I think in the fabric of affect, Andre Green says, you know, the Oedipal situation is what defines us. You write, uh, Lacan himself claimed that perhaps the Oedipal show has run its course, but we are not convinced. What we see, Oedipally speaking, rather, is how the father is still the symptom of the son. Um, so... Tell me again, you know, sort of following the same pattern, what did you see uh, in the clinic? Um, and then what are you seeing the different types of father figure functioning that we're seeing culturally that you brought into the book? Well, I think that um, we, we, because, you know, a huge thread, uh, one, one huge thread of our argument in the book is that um, ambivalence is an index of some kind, right? It's an index certainly of um, when something is important to you. So that could be, of course, uh, could have an unconscious importance to you. And then importance itself is kind of interesting because you think, well, what even does that mean? So for us as psychoanalysts, we think, well, you know, if we, you know, starting with Freud and, uh, you know, and, and it's certainly there in Lacan for a very, very long time. What is important to us from the very beginning of our lives uh, is the love that we have and the love that we experience and however that love might be experienced um, from and by our parents. 
So from the eatable beginnings, you know, we have a very, uh, you know, very clear uh, from Freudian point of view, you know, that, that, that your love and your hate is going to be directed in two particular ways. I think we touched on this a little bit last time, but to make the point that, you know, the, from the point of view of uh, Oedipal ambivalence, um, we can understand it as beginning with the Freudian Oedipus complex, but we should also see that most forms of neurotic guilt, uh, even if uh, most neurotics come into you and they're not saying things like, I really think I really want to have sex with my mother and I think I really want to kill my father. They're usually saying things like, I feel really guilty about uh, just, you know, the way that I'm relating to my girlfriend or I, I feel particularly guilty about the fact that, you know, um, I would like to leave this person but I still have, you know, strong feelings for them. So in other words, or even just I feel guilty, I didn't fill out my tax return or I didn't fill it out properly. So in other words, that the kind of really quite banal ways that people speak about their guilt actually in some ways belie uh, a, a more typical kind of uh, prototypical Oedipal experience, uh, Oedipal ambivalence. So we, we cling on to that in the book. We think it's really important because we see it in our clinics and we think it operates in culture in all sorts of ways, which obviously we can go on and talk about. But we don't stop there because we are cognizant of the fact that we don't just see, uh, you know, a kind of Oedipalized ambivalence. We see something else. And that something else is where we have to kind of look at the, if you like, the kind of different uh, iterations of what we would say after Lacan, the names of the father in our culture and in our times. So I don't know if you want to pop in, Stephanie, and then I can come back in uh, uh, later on if you want to just, I don't know, pop in and I'll come back. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, so um, you know, one, one thought is that um, you know, with Lacan's 17th seminar, he commented that uh, we're... The Oedipus complex uh, he reworks and basically says that increasingly in our times, in his time in the the seventies, um, you know what we're seeing is uh, a decline in the typical position of the father figure as you know authority, um, and um, you know with that comes a kind of uh, losing our bearings in the way of how to answer the question of who and how to be regarding our, our jouissance. Because um, the, the various uh, father complexes that we find in Totem and Taboo and um, the Oedipus myth, um, um, you know, both function to uh, explain, uh, you know, why jouissance uh, is prohibited, um, limited, and uh, speak to how our desire is oriented in accordance with which you know, moral law. Um, and uh, in this um, new discourse, a new form of social relation, um, which uh, Lacan called the capitalist discourse. Um, we have a, a different kind of ideal. Um, so, um, you know, basically um, in times of neoliberalism, what's commanded is enjoying yourself. You know, you're supposed to be completely happy and, uh, you know, fully satisfied and pursue um, your own uh, your own enjoyment and um, of course that ensures that that's not going to to happen um, so that's this kind of new um, super egoic um, 
uh, master figure. Um, so a, a kind of different, um, you know, as a super egoic joisseur, um, the, of the primal father, um, uh, who, um, is seen as making the subject guilty for not enjoying themselves enough or failing to be authentically themselves, um, whatever the case may be. And so the, the new source of discontents, um, in our times compared to civilization and its discontents, uh, you know, when, when Freud was writing that in the 1930s, Lacan says is that we're a culture of permissiveness. Um, you know, that, um, there's a kind of prohibition on prohibiting, so to speak, that creates situations of, of suffering. So just really briefly, the, the capitalist discourse essentially um, uh, helps us deny our, our lack in jouissance um, because uh, instead of addressing, um, you know, the, um, instead of addressing our subjective complaints to an other via the social link, um, we, uh, look for something that, um, could, uh, you know, via this kind of consumerist culture. Um, so in the discourse, it's represented by an S1, um, we reach towards that, um, self-help book or, um, that, uh, empathy training program or that new house, um, that it's, it's uh, thought that there's some object or some experience, that next vacation, um, you know, if only we could have that, then we'll really be able to fully enjoy ourselves. And so it's a, it's a kind of way to deny castration um, that is, is wrapped up in this new, um, new fashion of um, kind of different, different fa father, uh, version um, that we're relating to. And so um, Lacan says, you know, basically the problem is there's no longer any shame. And so it creates new types of new types of symptoms uh, in the in the clinic. And, and I've talked for a while. I don't know. I don't know if you want to jump in, Carol. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I think that this, this uh, I know, Christopher, you asked about the kind of, yeah, like what was our take really on given that we say our take in the book about, you know, Oedipus is that we still see it, you know, Oedipus is alive and well, you know, um, in a very ordinary way, I want to say, because you said about, you know, where do we find, like, what sort of example in the clinic? Well, a really ordinary one would be the kind of the degradation of a man, uh, the unwitting or unconscious degradation of a man, um, of his father and, and this this quite often occurs um so the one that that comes to mind is uh, a man i was seeing for a long time and he had one brother okay uh but he would regularly say my sisters and brothers and i would say your brothers he would go i, d I don't mean my brothers i mean my brothers my and again he said my brothers your brothers no my brother my sisters and my father okay so it was so difficult for him not to include his father as a brother when he would speak about his family so in the analysis what he had to be able to come to articulate was how he really saw his father as a weak, you know, feeble, very much, you know, a character in the background without any real power or sway in the family. In fact, you know, his mother was the one who made most of the decisions. And yes, his father went out to work and he had a decent job and so on and so forth. And he provided for them. But, you know, he was a quiet man sitting in the corner and... He did not respect his opinion. So uh, this kind of weak father, this kind of uh, father who doesn't properly uh, embody the, the law, the transmission of the law, this is a regular feature of uh, neurotic clinic. 
Um, and, and, and since and, Freud's and, time, even. Uh, I mean. It was literally, I was just about to say, <laughs> I was just about to say, and Freud knew well. But the, you know, the image that came to mind with inviting, inviting that person in was um, the uh, TV series, The Sopranos, where the therapist, Dr. Melfi, um, has been assaulted and she has the monster. She has Tony Soprano, who she knows that she could invite him in to, 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 to do justice. I mean, she knows that she knows he's a monster and a killer. To be um, the, the primal father. Mm-hmm. To be the primal father. Um, and you, and watching it, you both want her to and don't want her to, and she, she doesn't. Um, I was thinking about, you know, this command, you must enjoy, you must enjoy, um, uh, which is, um, it is absolutely uh, prevalent. Um, patients who, what they come in is they say that they're not enjoying and that that is why they're seeking treatment. Um, and what they present is, at least to me, um, just being a human being, but the fact that they're not 100% happy all the time. There's some, I don't know if it's a meme or some saying out there that says, unless you say to life, absolutely yes, it's an absolute no, like there's no room for doubt at all. Um, it's, uh, and that's, this is, this is a comment. I see this a lot um, in, in the, the command to, uh, the command to enjoy. And the distinction there between demand and desire, I think is important. Um, every, every so often I'll, I'll, uh, use the term, well, just the word desire, uh, with an analysis and, and, and they'll think I mean demand. Um, and, and that's certainly what the capitalist discourse enables that the kind of, of, social link, um, that it just flattens desire and reduces it to demand. There is, as you were saying, you know, what, what is it that you want? It is X. Well, go get it. And certainly we see that in psychotherapy all the time. And in patients who, you know, every once in a while have a patient who, who says, Oh, you know, um, you were the closest to my office or something. And they have no idea that I'm an an analyst and, you know, they'll, they'll demand, um, you know, coping skills as their S one or so, you know, we have that to, to reckon with, um, you know, that there's this true belief that there is something that will answer one's discontents. Well, I think when you say desire, um, Adam Phillips has, uh, one of his, among many things that he says wonderfully, he says, an analyst is someone you have a desire to talk to and who has a desire to listen to you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that he, he does either. Um, I mean, desire just in brief Lacanian terms is, uh, you know, that, um, could be, it could, yeah, it, it could be unconscious. Um, and so it's a real, question of, of what it, what is it that the other desires that the other wants from me? Um, and what is it, you know, correspondingly that, that the subject desires, um, and there is no, it's a, it's a metonymic, um, uh, mm-hmm. well, I think Steph, when you say that the person who shows up saying, well, you were closest to my office, they don't know you're an analyst. They don't know your desire, the unconscious. There's a, a wonderful uh, a paper a woman wrote called How to Be a Good Patient, and it just reverses everything. And she says, um, since patients end up suffering from whatever it is that their analysts treat, they should understand that in choosing an analyst, they're also selecting their pathology. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll put that on my intake paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming to the, the end of... Uh, of our sec part two of our two part interview. Um, is there anything, uh, in the, in the two, the two hours we've had together that hasn't been expressed or covered that you'd like to comment on so that, so that the listeners have a, a feel for, for the book and its arguments. You know, since, um, the publication of this book, especially you know, when I encounter other, uh, psychoanalysts, um, and they want to, you know, chat with me about our book. Um, 
they'll often they'll often have that. Well, what do we do about um, you know our xenophobia? Um, what do we do at the cultural level? Um, and it's it's a very complex and an important question because um, you know as as Carol said, um, you know while we do see uh, ambivalence about our own jouissance being the at the root of xenophobia and um, you know very much speaking to um, how we um, you know xenophobia very much speaks to how we avoid facing our lack um, our own jouissance and um, you know an analysis is is really uh, a one-on-one -on -one thing that we see that that works uh, and it's just very tough uh, in terms of activism and uh, you know group efforts to um, uh, you know to work through the tensions of one's ambivalence about the other. Okay, um, what uh, we like to finish the episodes with? Uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on something together or individual? <laughs> oh wow, both. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, well, our next our next book project is on uh, liminality, uh, how we see that in the in the culture and and in the clinic, and uh, we've we've done some uh, presentations and um, and uh, a publication now um, uh, on the way uh, as kind of shorter things, but that's a work in progress. All right, very good. We have been talking with uh, Dr. Stephanie Swales, Dr. Carol Owens. Their book is Psychoanalyzing Ambivalence with Freud and Lacan. Dr. Swales, Dr. Owens, thank you so much for joining the program. Thanks, Christopher. It's lovely. <laughs>